2021 was a year of hardship, of suffering, of loss, of, of bad news. And as they look forward into 2022, they look forward expectantly, hoping that it will be different. And yet others will carry the weight of 2021 into 2022. And as they look forward, there seems to be no end to the trials that they are enduring. The dread of what the new year has in store is set upon them. Or maybe you're one of the few that the new year is just another day. It's the same as it was yesterday, and it's the same as it will be tomorrow. But I'm not here to preach to you this morning a New Year's sermon, though I think today's passage, as with all of Scripture, shows us who God is and who we are and how we ought to live, not only in the new year, but in every single moment. I'm not here to proclaim to you this morning that 2022 you will live your best life now. To do so would be to deny the reality of the life to come. I'm also not here to tell you that 2022 will be better for you or for your family or for our nation than 2021 was. My prayer for you and I this morning is that we would see God with greater clarity through his word. And that through his word, we might be conformed into the image of Christ and our fellowship with God would grow deeper and stronger and affect how we approach not only 22, but every day the Lord gives us here on earth. And so with that in mind, if you will stand, we will read this morning, starting in James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord of Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich man in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of, of his own will he brought us forth by his word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. This is the reading of the word of the Lord in the book of James this morning. If you will pray with me. Lord, we come before you this morning, humbling ourselves under your sovereign care. We come before you seeking your truth, which you have given us through your holy word. 
As we open your word this morning, I ask that through your word we would see clearly who you are. May every false idol we hold dissolve in your glorious presence. May every idol thought be taken captive. And may you work in us through your word this morning. Amen. You can be seated. The goal of this passage in James is the same as it is with every other book, every other passage, every verse, every word, every jot and tittle that we see in Scripture. And we see in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The same is true for this passage this morning. The Holy Spirit has inspired James to write these truths for a very specific purpose, that we might be trained in righteousness and equipped for every good work. And so what is James inspired by the Holy Spirit teaching us this morning about God? The first thing we see from the outset of this letter is the sovereignty of God. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James immediately recognizes that his identity is not in his familial relationship with Jesus Christ, not in his earthly relationship as Jesus' physical brother. His identity is not found in being a leader of the church. His identity is found as a servant under the sovereign Lord. He rightly recognizes what sinful men deny, that all things are under the control of God. The reason we must grasp this truth this morning is because sovereignty is not something God does. Sovereignty is not an act of God, but it is who God is. And so if we fail to fully grasp the truth that God is sovereign, we fail to grasp who God is. And this is true for His sovereignty, it is true for His holiness, it is true for His righteousness, and all those things that we call attributes. It is who God is is. And we must ascribe to this because we see this truth throughout all of Scripture. From God bringing Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus, conquering the Pharaoh in such a magnificent way that his name might be glorified in all the earth, to sending Babylon to conquer Jerusalem, which he foretold through the prophet Habakkuk. This truth is front and center again when Nebuchadnezzar stands on the palace roof And he looks out at great Babylon and he declares, look what I have built. And in the instant in which he said those words, God reminded him who the sovereign Lord was. And Nebuchadnezzar became like an animal and he lived as a beast of the field until the Lord restored him to his position. That is unless Nebuchadnezzar chose to act like a wild animal and lived in the woods and then chose to come back. We see God's sovereignty in the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was born not a thousand years too early, not a couple hundred years too late, but Jesus Christ is born at the right time. We see this in Galatians 4, 4 and Romans 5, 6. And what we see in all of Scripture is absolutely nothing is outside of the hand of our sovereign God. R.C. Sproul talks about a maverick molecule. 
That if there is one molecule outside of the sovereignty of God, then all the promises of God ultimately fell. Because if God cannot direct this one molecule, how could we trust Him to direct anything? How can we be confident that this one molecule doesn't come and foil the entire plan of salvation? If you and I in here are redeemed and looking forward to spending eternity with God, it is because God is sovereign. He will bring all that He has declared to pass. I have been asked many times by those who disagree with the sovereignty of God, show me a Bible verse that, 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 that definitively declares the sovereignty of God. And I can do one better for you and I this morning. The whole counsel of God declares His sovereignty. All of Scripture testifies to it. And the reason I can say that with all confidence is because sovereignty is who God is. So anytime in Scripture we see God acting, we see God acting in His sovereignty. Anytime we see God acting, we see Him acting in holiness and righteousness and justice because it is who God is and He cannot stop being God. So if you want to know if Scripture attests to the sovereignty of God, all of it does because it is who God is. It is not something that He does. And so James brings forth this truth from the opening statement, recognizing that he is a servant under the sovereign control of God, but he continues to testify to this truth and begins to really push against the sinful tendencies of our heart. As humans, we declare that God is good. We declare that God is good all the time, and when we talk about God being good, we often have a set of good things going on in our life. We are willing to accept and declare that God is sovereign when everything seems to be going well. When the cancer diagnosis came back clear. When our kids are redeemed and born again, we declare God is good. But men, in a vain attempt to somehow protect the character and the goodness of God, denies His sovereignty in tragedies and trials and sufferings. Men will formulate a God who would really like to help us when things go wrong, but His ultimate goal for you and I is our free will. And because that is God's ultimate plan, He can't really do anything to stop a tragedy. God becomes more deistic than we see Him to be in Scripture. God wishes He could help, but He has limited Himself so that we can freely choose to do whatever it is that we want to. And in trying to protect God, men rob God of His glory. Because as we see in verses 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, our trials are not accidents. They are opportunities to grow in holiness. The trials we are facing are not random acts, but they are means by which we can glorify God. It is a small step to say that all things pass through, the God, through, through God's hands, to saying that God ordains whatever comes to pass. But is it a step that Scripture takes and one that we must also take? The sovereignty of God informs us that there are no evil forces working outside of God's control. And he shrugs his shoulders wishing he could do 
something about it. No, God ordains all that comes to pass from eternity past. This is not a unique Baptist belief. This is not a unique Reformed belief. This is what the church has believed, Scripture has taught throughout the millennia, that God ordains all that comes to pass. He is sovereign over all of creation. Yet we must not do what modern church history has done, who deny the sovereignty of God and assume that if God ordains all things come to pass, then God must be the author of sin or the tempter of men. It is not only an unbiblical thought, but it is a heretical thought. And it is a thought that James pushes back against in our passage this morning. We must not conclude that because God is sovereign, because God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, that he is any way evil. And as believers holding to sola scriptura, we must say what scripture says, no more and no less. The God who ordained Joseph to go to Egypt did not arouse the sinfulness in his brothers' hearts. The God who ordained the Roman soldiers to crucify Jesus Christ at the behest of the priest did not tempt them into sin. The God who placed the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden as a reminder that man is not God did not tempt Adam and Eve to sin. And James lays out this rich understanding of the trials that we face as a means of sanctification to be a comfort to you and I. That as we encounter trials, brothers and sisters, that as we remain steadfast, as we are conformed to the image of Christ, it is a comfort in the midst of our trials because we know nothing is outside of God's control. He is sovereign. And James continues this exposition in verse 12 this morning, which serves as a transitionary verse from the first portion of James 1 to the second. Some scholars believe that verse 12 goes with verses 2 through 11 to form an inclusio, that James talks about trials and remaining steadfast in verse 2 through 4, and he does the same in verse 12 and closes in as one passage Yet others believe that verse 12 is launching into the next passage, much like 2 through 4 launches into the first. But the reality is verse 12 does both, tying the first part of the chapter to the second part of the chapter under the sovereign care of God. And we end up seeing in this entire first section is that there is a call, a problem, a solution, and an assurance or foundation which launches us into the rest of the book of James. And so in this section, James continues his call to faithfulness, to holiness in the midst of the trial. If you'll remember in verses 2 through 4, though it's been a few months since we've been here, James calls us to count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds. And the reason he calls us to count it all joy because these are opportunities, these are tests by which we are conformed into the image of Christ. That if we remain steadfast in our faith, when it has its full effect, and this is something we often miss in the English language, when James is talking about having its full effect, he is using birthing language here. And so if you will, when, when our steadfastness has come to term, we may be perfect and complete 
lacking in nothing. We see in verses 2 through 4 the process of sanctification, that throughout our lives as we remain steadfast and faithful into the trials, God conforms us into the image of Christ until that time when God glorifies us. This is not to say that we are sinless in this life. This is not to say that we will be glorified in this life. But in each trial, we learn to lean and trust in the Lord. And as we trust in God and as we lean into Him and as we find our comfort in Him, He conforms us into the image of Christ. And verse 12 begins very similarly. Blessed is the, rem- blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. James is once again calling us to remain steadfast in the midst of trials. But whereas the first time James talks about remaining steadfast, producing holiness, he talks about steadfastness being rewarded with the crown of life. And so what we see in these two passages is that the outworking of our steadfastness in the midst of trial produces holiness and is rewarded with eternal life. And men throughout church history has come to this portion to preach a works-based salvation. They conclude that because James is saying, if you do these things, then you earn these things, then all of our salvation must be earned. And they read the book in light of that misunderstanding. That if you, if you persevere and remain faithful, then you will be glorified and then you will have eternal life. What a weight. What a weight that is, Bill. If you remain faithful under trial, if you never slip, then and only then will you earn your salvation. Or Dallas, Jesus died on the cross But it's up to you to remain faithful because if you fail to remain faithful, you'll not spend eternity with him. And still others have taught that this passage shows us that we can lose our salvation. That Brian, although Jesus Christ has redeemed you, if you don't remain faithful, you will lose your salvation and you will miss the crown of life. There is no eternal rest And what happens when the Word of God is twisted and distorted is used to heap legalistic laws and rules upon men. Laws and rules that we cannot keep, that crush people. And many people have been crushed under the weight of works-based Gospels. And all of Scripture testifies against this idea. Abraham is chosen not on his ability to obey God, but because God has chosen him in grace. Isaac is chosen over Ishmael, not because of his works, but because of grace. Jacob is chosen over Esau, not by birthright, but because of grace. And the New Testament tells us time and time again that we are saved not by works, but by grace. And so whatever James is telling us in this passage, it is not a works-based Salvation, and we will come back to this verse at the end. And so we see in 2 through 4 and verse 12 is James calls us to remain steadfast under trial that we might be holy and have eternal life. But there is a problem. We are sinners. We are not 
faithful. And in verse 13, James begins to discuss another response to the trials. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And here is where the English limitations really begin to show. Depending on your translation, the word test, trial, or temptation may be found in different areas. Some of your translations may have the word temptation in verse 2 instead of trials, or you might see tested in verse 3 instead of temptation. And the reason for this is James is using one Greek word in each of these instances throughout this chapter. The Greek word is pyrazo, and I was informed that if I was correct, Brian would let me know after the, the sermon. But the Greek word that James uses is pyrazo or pyrasmas. And this word is used and translated throughout the New Testament as testing, trials, temptations, or to test, to try, and to tempt. And though there are different words James could have used, he uses the same word all the way through 2 to 14. And what James is revealing to us is that the same circumstances, which are on the one hand opportunities to go forward, are on the other hand opportunities to go back. When God brings trials in our lives to strengthen our faith, in our own strength they become opportunities to sin. And because God is sovereign and man is sinful, we blame God. Genesis 3, 11 through 13, we read it this morning. He said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree to eat, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the, ser- the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Do you hear Adam's accusation? It's the woman's fault. I was fine. I was sinless until the woman came into the picture. God, if you had not given me this woman, I would not have sinned. Husbands, do not use that as an excuse for your sin against your wife. You will be in more trouble than I can convey this morning. But he's accusing God. The reason Adam sinned is because God gave him a woman who tempted him. And then God asked Eve, what is this that you have done? And she doesn't accept the responsibility either. She says, the serpent deceived me. And who is the creator of the serpent? It's God. Or when Moses is on the mountain receiving the ten commandments and he comes down from the mountain because the people are sinning and Aaron has made a golden calf for the people to worship we see Aaron's response in Exodus 32 21 through 23 and Moses said to Aaron what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them Moses lays the blame where it belongs what have these people done that you have brought such a great sin upon them And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Listen to Aaron, it's not my fault. It's the people. You know how evil and sinful these people are? The people that God brought out of Egypt and and, and left us here as you went up on the mountain... They caused me to sin. 
Had God not brought them out of Egypt, had God not brought us to this place, had you not been upon the mountain with God, I would not have sinned. Is this not our own inclination? That when we sin, do we not often place the blame on others or on our situation? That when we give into anger or lust, pride, self-righteousness, do we not look at others first? How often have we excused our sin because someone else has first sinned against us? If my wife had not done this thing, then I would not have gotten angry and I would not have said what I said. If my boss had recognized how valuable I was, I would not have had to cut corners to keep up. One of our greatest tendencies is to justify our sins by looking at the sins of others. And ultimately, it leads us to conclude, whether we verbalize it or not, that if God is sovereign, as Scripture attests that He is, that it is God's fault for tempting us. My wife making me angry, had she not said these things, had God not given her to me, I would not have sinned. And this is what James is driving at in verse 13. The sinful inclination to lay the blame at God for the sins that we commit in the midst of trials he sins. This is why James uses the same word throughout this passage to draw the distinction between the difference of the pyrosmos that God sins and the pyrosmos of our own hearts. And the most loving thing that I can tell you this morning, the most loving thing I can tell myself this morning, or one of the, one of the most loving things I can tell you this morning is what James tells us in verse 14 and 15. You're responsible for your own sin. Not your spouse, not your kids, not your co-workers, not your boss, not your circumstances, not God. You are responsible for your own sin. Your sin, my sin, is born out of one place, our heart, our desires. James exclaims, and Jeremiah exclaims in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The temptation to sin doesn't come from other people. It doesn't come from our circumstances. It comes from within. And there's this twofold structure that James lays out. God brings trials because he is sovereign, and we can remain steadfast and faithful, leading to holiness and life. Our desires entice us and lures us, and when it has its full effect, it gives birth to sin and death. And it is here that we see the depravity of man on full display. Man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because he is a sinner. The, act, the natural inclination of fallen man in the midst of trial is to sin. The temptation, the pyrosmos comes from our heart, not from our circumstances. And for to ever remain steadfast in the trials and sufferings of this life, we must grasp and understand this reality. That it's not our circumstances that tempt us to sin. It's not our circumstances that cause us to sin. It is our heart that leads us to sin. 
that our sinful heart is not our friend who guides us with good feelings, but it is our enemy which leads us astray with our factory of idols, as Calvin rightly would note. And the reward, the wages, the birth of our sin is death. And when we stand before God, there is not one sin that we commit that we can lay at His feet and say, you caused me to do this. No, we will all bear the full weight and responsibility for our sins, for all eternity suffering the wrath of God. This is a problem. James calls us to holiness and life, yet man, and, yet man is dead in their sins and trespasses. We cannot be faithful. And it is here in 17 through 18 that James shows us the solution to this problem. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creature. The reason we are called and the reason we are able to remain steadfast in the trials is because God has brought forth, brought us forth by the truth of his word. The same kind of language that James uses in verse 15, the same kind of language he uses in 2 through 4. And in verse 15, when desire gives birth to sin, which when it is full grown brings forth death, yet God brings forth life in us. What James is showing us in this passage is what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3. That if we're to see the kingdom of heaven, we must be born again. And James is telling us how we are born again. Not by my strength, not by my works, not my ability to remain steadfast in trial. It is God who brings us forth. It is God who births us into new life. Apart from God, bring us forth by the truth of his word, we cannot receive the crown of life. Look again at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The crown of life has already been promised to those who God has redeemed. It is not something we earn. It was earned for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ wears the crown of thorns that we might have the crown of life. The crown of life is not dependent upon our faithfulness. It is given to us because God is faithful. Our steadfastness is a byproduct of our new life. We don't earn holiness life by remaining steadfast, but we remain steadfast because God has given us new life. He has already promised to sanctify, glorify, and give us life and give it to those who are redeemed. And the purpose by which we are brought forth is that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. That we might be set aside. And the first fruits is harking back to the Old Testament. That, that when the crop was brought in, you would bring the first, the best, and you would lay it aside and it would be set aside for God. 
that the, the one-year-old lamb would be brought aside and set aside for God. The firstborn child would be set aside for God. It is the first fruits. And when we are born again, we are set aside as a kind of first fruits to be holy and used by God, that we would be holy as He is holy. The good gift of salvation is far, far more than eternal life with God sometime in the future. I think sometimes, unfortunately, that's, that's what we boil salvation down to. That when we think about salvation, when we think about eternal life, it is sometime in the future for, an undes- for, for, for eternity, but it is not for now. But the good gift of salvation is that God promises us life now. That rather than being dead in our sins and trespasses, rather than having to give in to sin every single time a trial comes, we can remain steadfast in our faith and have life now. Rather than waiting to be glorified, God conforms us even now into the image of Christ, making us a kind of first fruit set aside for His glory and our sanctification. And the only reason we don't always respond to the trials of life in sinfulness is because we've been given new life. That although we are not free from sin in this life, we've been given a new heart by the new birth which comes from God. Yet all of this still is submitted under the sovereignty of God, and we must not lose that. One of the dangers of, of I think, modern reading is we open the Bible to read for the day and we read a passage and then the next day comes and we open the Bible and we read the passage and we fail to see the continuity of Scripture. That James 1 isn't, isn't, isn't dissected from James 2. The first part of James 1 isn't dissected from the second part of James 2. It is all submitted under the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 18. How are we brought forth by the word of truth? It's those first few words in verse 18. Of his own will. Much like we did not choose our first birth, it was at the will of someone else, our parents. We do not have a choice in our second birth. It is at the will of another who is God. This is not a truth unique to James, but it's something that Jesus Christ tells us himself in the book of John. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me. What? Let me start again. I might have that wrong. John 15, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe John 6, 44 will help us to see this truth. No one can come to me, unless what? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's just the book of John. There's, there can't be more than that. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of 
God. Behind our choice is the wonder that God first chose us. The faith we have to trust in Christ alone for salvation is a gift of God that he dispenses at his will. We unfortunately tend to read Ephesians 2.8, kind of wonky. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And the only part of that passage we consider to be the gift of God is his grace. Yet the gift is tied to faith. By grace we have been saved, and in the way in which we respond in faith, that's a gift of God. Had faith not been given to us, we would not respond to him in faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, the faith, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And the reaction to God's sovereignty and salvation is the same as it is to God's sovereignty in all of creation. And we see that in 1.13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Yet the truth remains, God is sovereign, and God is sovereign over all of creation, whether we kick, fight, and scream, and push against it. God ordains from all eternity past whatsoever it is that comes to pass. And so when we come to salvation, Paul's response to this question in Romans is the same as James' answer here. Not because it is their wisdom, and Paul and James talked, and, and, and how do we address this question of God's sovereignty, but it is because God the Spirit inspired both men to address this inclination. Romans nine fourteen through 23. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice on God's part to choose some and to not choose others? To, to love Jacob and to hate Esau? Isn't it God's fault that Esau is a sinner, not part of the covenant? Is that not God's fault. Is God not unjust in picking and choosing who to redeem and who not to redeem? And this is Paul's response. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is not because we are somehow innately good, and if God doesn't save us, then it is His fault we suffer His wrath. We are enemies of God. We hate God. We despise God until He shows His mercy upon us. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up. Right? Pharaoh wasn't part of the covenant people, so let's clarify this before we, before, we, before we get there. God doesn't bring Pharaoh out in the Exodus and bring him to Mount Sinai, but he has a purpose in raising Pharaoh up and placing Pharaoh on the throne of Egypt to contend against the nation of Israel. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I, God, for this purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you. Not Pharaoh's power, God's power. That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And the issue with this passage is not an issue with me. If, the, if this passage rubs us wrongly, then it is Scripture convicting us. It's not my responsibility to correct you, to reproof you, to train you in righteousness. That is Scripture's responsibility. And so let Scripture teach us this morning. And so what is our response to this truth? Verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, who can resist God? Why, why would he pour his wrath out on anybody? Who can, who can resist him? Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its motor? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand in glory? The reason the Lord endures and is patient with sinful man. Right? Jesus Christ came into the world not to condemn it. Why? Because the, the, the world is already condemned. We, you, I, and our sinful nature being born into sin already stand condemned. Apart from the new life given to us by God, we stand condemned. And the reason that God endures is to make his glory known. That his mercy, his grace is so much sweeter. That we see that we deserve nothing. You and I are condemned. We deserve to suffer the wrath of God. Apart from God's grace, we blame him for everything that goes wrong in our lives. The only thing we really truly can blame God on is saving us. Pouring out his grace upon us, redeeming us from our sin. The sovereignty of God in our salvation also gives us assurance and it sets the foundation for the rest of James. Our ability to remain steadfast, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to receive the crown of life is futile in our own strength. If we were to be responsible for remaining steadfast, we have verses 14 and 15 testifying against this. We would utterly fail and be crushed under that weight. But instead, our desire to remain steadfast is born out of a love for God. And our love for God is there because God first loved us. We remain steadfast because we love God. And the only reason we love God is because He has first loved us. And He has proven His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you remain steadfast, know this. It is not because it is your own strength. If you love God, cherish God, desire to grow deeper in your relationship with God, it is not something that is innate inside of you, but it is something that has been given to you by God. Throughout the book of James, we're not being called to work for our salvation, but to work because of our salvation. And this is where we fail so many times when we come to James. Because so often men have read James as a legalistic book. 
that James is calling us to work for our salvation, that he is contrary to Paul teaching about being saved by grace alone and not works. James teaches about being saved by works. And that fails to even consider the first chapter. That James does call us to work. James calls us to exercise our faith, to work out our salvation, which I believe was written by someone else, I think, in the New Testament, that we are called to work out our salvation, but it is because we have been called. And James transitions into this next passage with a positive command in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. If you're in Christ this morning, know this, that your faith Your security, your ability to love God and obey His commands does not rest in you, but rests in Christ alone. If there is any hope for sanctification, it is because God has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. Rather than laying out a works-based system where James is calling believers to remain steadfast, to earn their salvation... He is telling us that we can and ultimately will remain steadfast. If we are in Christ, we will remain steadfast because we have been promised and given new life by our brothers. Therefore, do not be deceived, brothers and sisters, when we encounter trials. Yes, trials come under the sovereign hand of God, ordained by Him from eternity past. But we remain steadfast because of his love for us. We must know that our salvation is from above and that we have been set aside as first fruits to be holy. And as we draw close to God, resting in Christ, we will one day be glorified. We will one day receive the crown of life, which begins now and comes to full effect when our trials have ended. But we must also know this. We must also understand where the responsibility of our sin lies. Even as believers, there are times we tend to place our sin and blame on others. Do not deceive yourselves in justifying your sin, blaming others, but instead see your sin as opportunities to confess and repent and trust in Christ. Not in your own strength, but because God has brought you forth in life through his word, namely Jesus Christ. If you will, pray with me. Lord, we, we can never express the gratitude we have for the salvation that you have given us. Father, to stand before you for all eternity, we would never be able to encapsulate your grace. We confess this morning that we have been brought forth, the redeemed have been brought forth and given new life by your grace alone of your own will as you show us in James 18. Father, as we walk through this new year, as we face trials which will come, as we face tests, may we view them as opportunities to glorify your name. Father, I also pray that you would convict us in times in which we seek to not claim responsibility for our sin. And we seek to blame our spouse, our children, 
those within the body of Christ as excuses for our sin. I pray that you would convict us and bring us to a point of confession and repentance. I I pray for those this morning who, who are not found in Christ. Father, I pray that you would give them new life this morning, that you would draw them to you through your word, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you would birth them anew. And ultimately, Father, I pray that we would find our rest in you. In Jesus' name I pray.